Promise to Save Emily by Colin Perry. They could never stop the train in time. A dawning sun silhouetted the massive form of the freight train. Loaded with fuel, water and sand for traction, the engine cab weighed in at 186,000 kilograms, slightly less than a 747 jumbo jet. Even as it idled, conductor Robert Moore could feel the diesel power rumble through the ground. Moore, 49, ran his eye along the 96 cars behind him and for a moment recalled why he'd always wanted to be a conductor. To him there was beauty in the oversized machinery and in having control over such tremendous power. It was 7am on May 12, 1998. Moore had already scanned a dispatch listing hazardous materials aboard the train. We've got some gas with us, he'd reported to his engineer, Rod Lindley, in the cab. The presence of liquid propane gas would mean taking extra precaution when breaking the 186-tonne train. With explosive gas on board, a derailment would be disastrous. The rest of the cargo was mainly new cars, car parts and coal. After a final external inspection, Moore jumped aboard. Slowly the train pulled out of the Decatur, Illinois depot. They were headed east, into a sun that promised a beautiful day for their 276-kilometre run to Peru, Indiana. At around noon that day, Tiller Marshall prepared to tackle some work in the garden. The 34-year-old single mother of four had planned to brighten up the front of her home in Lafayette, Indiana, with flowers. It was a beautiful day for it, she thought, gazing past the houses across the street. Some 45 metres away, just visible through tall, swaying grass, train tracks glistened in the sun. Marshall began working in a patch of soil. Sitting next to her, cheerfully running her hands through dirt, was her 19-month-old daughter, Emily. For a while, she kept turning to check on Emily, who played close at hand. Eventually, though, Marshall's absorption in her work became total. Comfortable inside the engine cab, Robert Moore smiled as Rod Lindley switched on his sideboard heater. The engineer was preparing lunch the way he often did, by using the heater as a stove. Pork chops, said Lindley with pride, carefully positioning a lump wrapped in tin foil. Smoke them myself. Moore and Lindley had 50 years of railroad experience between them, and they had a lot in common. Both had a passion for hunting and fishing, and both liked to swap stories of the outdoors. They also enjoyed talking about their families. As the radio crackled with dispatcher information, they'd laugh over the trials of raising children. Moore and Lindley approached Lafayette at about 1.45pm and slowed the train to the 40 km per hour speed limit. Lindley activated his flashing lights and warning bell. The two had been through the city hundreds of times, but they grew extra cautious rounding the first curve. Ahead, over just five kilometres of track, lay no fewer than 24 street crossings. As the train came out of the curve, Lindley noticed a small tannish dot on the right rail, about 140 metres ahead. He thought it might be a dog. Although it was against the rules to do so in Lafayette, he began lightly tapping his horn. Come on, puppy, move, he urged. The toots of a train whistle startled Marshall from her garden reverie. That's odd, she thought. They don't usually blow the whistle through town. 
she glanced over to check her daughter and her heart skipped a beat. Emily was nowhere in sight. While Lindley worked the controls, Moore stood alongside, staring ahead at whatever was lying on the rail. It wasn't unusual for such objects to turn out to be a bunch of rags or other debris. Far less common were real emergencies, although Moore had experienced a few accidents in his 23 years with the railroad. Now, as the train approached within 90 metres of the object on the rail, Moore looked intently. Then shock coursed through him. My God, he yelled as a tiny face turned towards him. It's a baby! Tilla Marshall dashed around to the rear of her house. She knew that Emily loved to play a game with her 11-year-old brother. The girl would run to the backyard while Zachary raced through the house to intercept her, causing squeals of delight. Marshall called out, Emily, Emily, honey, are you back here? There was no sign of the little girl. Marshall ran to the front of the house where Zachary was now standing. Is your sister with you? she asked. No, he said, and ran into the house to look for her. Lindley had an instant decision to make. Applying full emergency brakes with half the train still wrapped around a curve could cause derailment. But the terrible reality of the situation left Lindley no choice. He had to risk an emergency stop. The train shuddered and the wheels screeched in protest. Lindley lay on the horn and watched helplessly as the train continued to bear down on the toddler. He and Moore felt successive jolts as the cars braked front to rear, each car crashing into the car ahead. His unblinking eyes glued on the small figure before him. Lindley could do nothing now but pray. Marshall was unable to focus, even as her legs turned to jelly and shook uncontrollably. Everything seemed unreal to her. A wave of nausea overcame her, yet she stood fixed in a hallway of her house, unable to move. Zachary stood next to her, crying, Mum, I'm scared. As the train barreled forward, Robert Moore acted on instinct. He yanked open the left door of the engine cab and stepped out onto a narrow walkway. He hurried to the front of the engine and crossed to the right side. He then stepped down to the lower portion of the walkway, just to the rear of the train's plough. The child was now just 35 metres ahead. Moore frantically considered what to do. At this speed, still about 35 kilometres an hour, a train this size would need another 135 metres to stop. There was no way they'd halted in time. He winced as he imagined the plough hitting the little girl. With fewer than ten seconds left, the baby rolled off the track and onto the outer tie. If she kept down, perhaps the right edge of the plough would pass harmlessly over her. But then she reared her backside up, preparing to stand. No, no, baby, lie down, Moore yelled. The train was down to 24 kilometres an hour now, as the horn loosed its deafening howl. With only the toes of his left foot balancing on the walkway and his left hand clinging to the railing, Moore stretched out as far as possible. He knew he had only one shot. The child, still trying to stand, was now directly in the path of the plough. Stretching as far as he could, Moore put his right leg out in front of him. Come on, please, he muttered through clenched teeth. Just give me another inch or two. Suddenly the little girl was upon him. Swinging his leg out, 
he swept her aside with his foot. He saw the baby hit some rocks headfirst, then spin around as the train lumbered by. Had she been knocked clear of the engine? Moore leapt from the moving train and ran back to the child. She lay crying by the tracks, blood streaming from a gash beneath her hair. Marshall stood in the front garden of her home, clutching her son's hand and staring ahead as people ran towards the tracks. She was trying to scream for help, but could only gasp unintelligibly. Moore knelt down beside the child. Mama, Mama, the little girl cried out. Ecstatic relief swept over the conductor. Cradling her head, Moore lifted her from the dirt. Okay, sweetheart, he whispered. Let's go find Mummy. It was only then that Moore noticed the train had stopped and there were flashing red lights of emergency vehicles alongside the tracks. A neighbour, seeing the accident unfold, had dialed emergency services. With the baby in his arms, Moore began to walk and was met by police and a growing crowd of onlookers. Firefighters arrived, took the baby and handed her off to paramedics for a trip to the hospital. Tilla Marshall looked up to see police officers approaching her front lawn. Her mind spun in renewed terror. Don't you dare tell me that was my baby, she screamed. A police detective held up his hand. Ma'am, ma'am, calm down. The baby's going to be okay. We just have to find out whose it is. Marshall quickly realised that the child's description fitted Emily. The news that her baby was safely en route to the hospital finally sank in and she collapsed weeping into the detective's arms. Moore spoke with police and railroad officials, then began feeling shaky. Telling himself he still had a job to do, he began to walk the length of the train to check on the state of the carriages. You go sit in the cab, a train official said. I'll do the inspection. As Moore rested in the train, his pent-up emotions rushed to the surface. It had all unfolded so fast, and the reality of what he had done was only now hitting him. Within minutes, Lindley was standing beside Moore, taking the controls again. They looked at each other, their expressions of relief and gratitude more eloquent than words. Moore's overalls were still spattered with blood. The train pulled slowly out of Lafayette. That evening, when Robert Moore got home, his family was standing on the front veranda applauding. They had listened to the news of his heroism on television. To Moore's relief, they told him that the little girl had suffered nothing more serious than cuts and bruises. She'd be fine. A week later, Moore stepped from his car in front of Tilla Marshall's house. When Marshall was introduced to the man who had saved her daughter, she hugged him tightly. Moore picked up Emily and held her close. Hello, Emily, he said. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.